You're now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Greetings, hello, and welcome to Sound of Sanity. I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host. We've got the preacher, who's a teacher of sanity, right there in the flesh with some spirit. It's Benjamin J. You got both. <laughs> at least a little bit of both. <laughs> a little, at least a little bit of both. Ben, he is a soul inhabiting a body. It's, yes. It's Benjamin's, I, we can say that at the very least. Neither a ghost nor a, a, a zombie. Golem? Yeah, a zombie, a golem, yeah. golem, something. Neither one. His name is Benjamin Solzer. He's a wise man on this podcast where we try to bring biblical wisdom to the things that make you feel insane. Now, speaking of souls inhabiting body, z, this guy's got a big body, but he's got enough soul to, to fill it. Fill it. <laughs> 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 he's got enough soul. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> ben, why don't you <laughs> explain who this person is? <laughs> Almost made it sound like he was fat there. Well, I, yeah, I was, I was, I was debating whether or not to make some fat jokes, yeah. but I, it's okay. They'd be inaccurate. In they, oh, they'd be completely inaccurate. He's but. kind of a skinny fella, really. Uh, it's Pastor Jake yeah. Mitzley. It's a pastor who's a master of sanity. Yep. Less said about anything that we've already said, the better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. We ended last week on an accidental. <laughs> we ended last week on a cliffhanger because Jake said right before the closing music, he was like, wait, are we going to talk about the rest of it? And we were. We were just going to talk about it in another episode because our time drawed, drawed, our tri- time drew short like the ghost of Christmas present. We had to leave. But we're back. We're going to talk about all the other things that our fans told us they want to talk about it that happened kind of during the month of january and we are now in february in 1984 but many things have been going on in the culture and the pop culture and the world out there and if you go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity you can become part of our discord and you can tell us which ones of these things you want us to discuss on this podcast which is what we are doing now so what is the first thing for us to discuss First thing is a post of an, an Instagram post about AI. Our friend Mark says, we're living in that hideous strength and AI art is the objective room. And then he links to an Instagram post with of, of weird AI art with a guy commenting. Jake, can you explain to us what the objective room is? So that hideous strength is a novel by C.S. Lewis from back in the day it is a, a novelization Sort of of the abolition of man, mm-hmm. quite possibly the most the most prophetic essay and the most prophetic novel written in the 20th century. And yes, I include Orwell and everything else in yeah. the list. Yeah, I think that just may very well be the truth. The objective room is a place where so Mark Stedek is the main character, also the handle of the fan who put this in here, <clears throat> or maybe it's his real name. Who knows? Mark Stedek is being initiated into the organization called the Nice N I C E. And part of his initiation experience is he's put into an objective room. I'm not going to tell you any more about the nice. You can go read the book. You should. Everybody should read it. Yep. Great book. Um, But as part of his initiation, he's put into a place called the objective room. And the objective room basically is exposure therapy to horrible, horrifying things and perverse things that are just disgusting. And it's meant to acclimate 
to desensitize Mark to perversion, to desensitize him to things that are unnatural, to desensitize him to things that are just wrong or off-putting, and to to, to free his mind from the natural order Mm -hmm. by just forcing him to deal with and face the grotesque and the perverse. And so that's basically what Mark said. Well, actually, Mark actually points this not so much to the post, but to the comments on it. But I think the basic idea is that AI lives in Uncanny Valley and Mm. has the same sort of net effect of exposure to the grotesque and the weird, and it's off by just enough to be horrible. And so the particular picture has hands are all screwed up and the face is screwed up. Yeah, hands are the most difficult thing to learn to draw. If you've ever been somebody that studies art or wants a kid trying to draw comic book characters or something like that, hands are really difficult for anyone to conceive and replicate who's not God. And the the face, AI has trouble with face. So, well, and also AI doesn't need to have that much trouble with face because any trouble that it has is disturbing to us if a, if a human face is yeah. disfigured or weird or off i mean that's 90 if, if you went to the your favorite blu-ray store or whatever and you looked at the horror movie section what you would see is just a bunch of covers with messed up faces that's that's all that is the primary visual representation of something scary and it'd be demonic faces or ghostly mm-hmm. faces or monster faces and the teeth would be wrong and the eyes would be wrong that's just what you'd be see over and over and over and over and over because if I want to scare you, that's the easiest way to do it visually. If I want to horrify you. I, yeah. Because the human face is where we have, what would one say? I mean, we have someone's intelligence, someone's soul, someone's. It's what our empathy is tied to. Right. Exactly. And there's something of God's image, I just think, stamped on someone's face. Like, if I w- wanted to scare you, it wouldn't be as effective for me to say, it's a scary chest or it's a scary hand. I mean, those can be effective too, but mm-hmm. there's something specifically horrifying about a face that's wrong somehow. And it's how we judge people every day. That person has a weird look in their eyes or yep. they, they it's how we read emotion, how we read all kinds of things. So much of our communication is visual and it's the concerns that people have about our kids being stuck in school for two years or a year with masks. And I think those concerns were valid. Yep. I didn't always know what to do about it, but I think it's true that there's so much that you can key off of and learn from a face. There are consequences. Have you ever watched a a silent movie or a foreign movie with the subtitles off? Or it's amazing how much you can tell. Uh, Spielberg did this in his West Side Story. He had the the Latino characters speak in Spanish and then he didn't provide subtitles, which he did for stupid politically correct kind of reasons. But even though it was a lame show-offy gimmick, it was amazing how you really didn't need the subtitles to know. I mean, you had enough of the context of the story that you kind of knew the broad strokes of, well, of course he doesn't like her or doesn't think his sister should be with this guy. But it was amazing how much you could just absorb basically from watching their faces as much as anything and from hearing the tone of their voice and everything else. I don't know. Me and Jake were just having a discussion about green lines, this TikTok phenomenon I think it started as where people uh, – Analyze body language and photographs to, to say who wears the pants in a relationship. Mm-hmm. So if it's a picture of me and Meredith and I'm sort of leaning towards her, then that means and she's I, standing or sitting vertical. Then that means I'm whipped. She's the dominant partner. But what but I should want as the husband is for my wife to be angled, leaning, leaning in. And then it says something different if 
they're angled away from each other and things like that. Right. And it's true to some degree. I mean, it's not true to some degree because people do weird things. People are self-conscious about photographs. Photographers right. tell people a picture doesn't actually capture the whole reality. In fact, a picture can Especially right. one that's staged or that's post. Right. But there can be things that are revealed in that sort of thing. Just like when they train people for interviews or interrogations, things to key off of about body language. Sure. Even just basic things that you know as a counselor, like arms crossed or feet moving in to point towards the door. There's the head nod and the head shake and what they reveal. There are things that are revealed. Right. Yeah. If I'm in a situation where I don't want someone to know that I'm feeling tense, what I will do is put my palms out in what right. I hope is a casual way so that it does not look like I'm folding into my body because my instinct is to cross my arms or to assume a protective posture. Now, I fully admit that my attempt to cover it is probably, to some people at least, just as obvious, if not more obvious, as the natural thing to do is because it's just simply hard to hide who you it's are. Hard, it's hard. Truth wants to come out. Right. right? And that's, I mean, that's part of what is sort of revealed in these sorts of things. Like if you are, if you're lying or covering something up in one place, your body will have a way of telling the truth about what you really feel or what you really think. Since somebody's lying and they're saying yes, they'll often be shaking their head. No. Right. And if they're lying and they're saying no, they'll often be nodding their head up and down. If they're trying to act like they're happy to be somewhere when they're not, their feet will subtly move to point towards the door because they want actually want to leave. The little things like that just have a way of coming out. Mm -hmm. And so even when you try to compensate for that and hide and cover it up here, 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 and here, there's often some kind of signal that finds its way out. Yeah. Unless you're a psychopath. Right. And I think so. So I, I'm a little dubious on the whole, you can just look at a photograph because I think photograph, a photograph is just actually quite bad at capturing reality. That's one of the things that we, in our image saturated culture, we do not understand <laughs> is that. Especially, especially anything that's not 100% candid. Right. Well, and Even we, we there, could have right? a full, whole philosophical debate over whether it's even possible for something to be 100% candid if there is a camera or even a cell phone in the vicinity uh -huh. like on some level you're aware that person the could possibility be. yeah but right. but in that sense the camera does capture a reality it captures your self-awareness and it, i don't know it's 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 some, yeah some photographs I, capture reality yeah I mean, and i think you can look at pictures of say kanye and kim this is one of the popular ones that people will use and you can tell something and and i do think in real life minus the camera i mean i was just thinking you can about also this. see the shift with tom brady and giselle is another one that yeah people like people to yeah i I did realize as I thought about this, it's like, oh, one of the reasons why this resonates, even though I resent it a little bit because it feels a little unfair, is that in real life, I am making these judgments constantly. I mean, I will look That's at right. a couple that I don't even know. I'll be at the store or something. You know, I'll people watch at the mall or something. Not that I go to the mall to people watch, but you know what I mean? I'll just see somebody I have no idea of anything, and I will see the look in her eyes, and I'll be like, oh, she really loves her husband, or oh, they hate each other. It's usually You're making those judgments consciously and subconsciously. What you resent is the pressure then to be self-aware about every possible way in which you can be judged. Right. Yeah, I do resent that. And I especially resent that because I, it's impossible for me not to take a photograph, ironically. And so I always lean in. And it's not necessarily because I'm whipped. Maybe it is. But I think it's because I know that they're expecting me to stand straight. And so I'm just 
trying to double reverse. I, I don't know. You could sit here and analyze me all day, but I just know I want to do the opposite of what they want. Well, yeah, at the end of the day, you have to take even your intuitions about, oh, that look in her eyes, like they're going to get divorced. Whatever it is, with a grain of salt. And yeah, and then go, we go we, we an know so much less about what's going on inside of other people than yep. we, we flatter ourselves that we do. Yes, true. But everybody thinks that they, they, they know what's going on in other people's hearts and minds. And it's easy to actually convince people that you do when you don't. Mm-hmm. But the reality is we self-knowledge is a lot harder than 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 anybody wants to wants to admit or give themselves credit for. The kind of person who who asserts perfect self-knowledge is somebody that you can not possibly trust. Mm-hmm. And if you're a street... what they mean is not that they know themselves, but that they are intent on interpreting themselves to absolutely everyone and hearing no critique right. from anyone. Mm-hmm. hearing nobody tell them the truth about themselves. So the assertion of perfect self-knowledge is always a front for sort of super egotistical, controlling, manipulative, narcissistic behavior. Right. Well, and if you're the kind of narcissist who wants people to think that you understand them perfectly, it's also pretty easy to assert something about somebody. If you're a bad counselor or a bad pastor or a bad street side psychic, you could talk to any man and say, I saw the look in your eyes. You don't love your wife. And nine times out of 10, even if he does love his wife, he's going to feel like you probably meant something because who, who isn't irritated with their wife 4,000 times a day. Right. I, 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 you're a very lonely man. Even when you're with people, you feel alone. Gee, well, you just described, you just described the human race, hundred percent of people, <laughs> but man, it felt really personal. Right. Man, I felt really understood and seen because it's not the kind of thing. All you have to do is pick something that's universal or close to it that is rarely acknowledged or spoken or articulated, but that is carried, right? It's just easy to do that and manipulate people. That's how psychics work. You've experienced loss. Ah, oh, I you, have experienced loss. Even very recently. <laughs> it was. And, the, and then you. And if you had said in the distant past that still affects you, your mind would have just shifted to something completely different. But you just sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and okay, I've never had anyone that important to me die, but I have a fractured relationship with my dad. That could be loss. You know, it's like, right, exactly. it's, such a, it's such a broad statement. This person was close to you, and then I'm just reading you. Yeah, it was family. Yeah. Was, was, <laughs> it, was it a parent? I'm, it's kind of fuzzy. Yeah, yeah. And then you volunteer your dad. And then it's like, well, now you've brought in a whole new category, catalog of possibilities. He's He disappointed you. <laughs> right. Oh, gee. <laughs> a dad disappointed somebody. <laughs> Whatever, you know, it's just like so just scratch the surface. Which isn't to say if there's a pastor or counselor or somebody listening that you're not allowed to ever make a declaratory statement about someone. No, it's just that people are very vulnerable because nobody's ever actually... Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares enough to know and to listen and to enter into people's pain and help love them through it the way that an actual pastor or shepherd or father or it would or should. And so then people become vulnerable to false shepherds, any false number fathers. of false shepherd to, shepherds or charlatans that are then able to manipulate them. And that's why people go to therapy. They, they want somebody who will listen and understand and make them feel seen and heard. 
and they want somebody to put words to the things they feel and help them put words to the things they feel. They want to speak it. They want to articulate it. They want to voice it, put words to it. Well, and it is therapeutic, and it can be healthy. There's value in that. Well, that's the other thing. That's that's the that's the other wrinkle. The other complication is a large part of helping somebody is making that person feel as though they've been helped. That's right, and that's true even of pastoral work, like listening and telling somebody that you helped them actually does help them. So you don't want to be deceptive and you don't want to be manipulative, but it is part of it. So all of which has nothing to do with chat. We started out on facial expressions, facial. right? And we got to... Well, this is why, why these machines hit the uncanny valley is because they don't actually understand what constitutes a human face. But Can't they're it? getting better and better. And so, yes. you know, one of the places we're headed with this sort of thing is AI porn, which I was just seeing something about yes. earlier this morning, you know, this sort of going making the rounds on, on social media. This woman who sat down and saw... AI porn that had been, I didn't. She's some kind of a. She's some kind of like yeah, an influencer, or TikTok person, or whatever. I don't actually know the details because I didn't want to know the details. I didn't want to see something I didn't want to see. But there's an image of her just sort of like crying and in tears because she has seen now AI porn of herself. Yeah, because somebody just said, "Make me a pornographic image of Jake Metzl," and then it. Did it. And, it did it. Yeah. And and so she's like having a, a breakdown and then somebody's mocking her for having a breakdown and then people are commenting on both the reality of it, the breakdown and the mockery of her. Well, and whatever you think of influencers on social media who are too precious with their selves, who put their image out there and then are sad that people actually use their image. I mean, there's ways you could maybe attack this lady, but also it is entirely appropriate for her to be horrified at somebody exploiting her image that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obvi- which sounds like a really obvious thing to say, but it ain't obvious to the people talking about it on Twitter for whatever reason. So AI can do that sort of thing. At the same time, you've got people continuing to work out deep fake technology. I hold TikTok and Instagram accounts that are just like deep fake personas. One of the most famous ones is this deep fake Tom Cruise. Right. Where they got an actor or somebody who can approximate Tom Cruise and they just deep fake him and modulate his voice and his face. And it's pretty amazing. It's pretty uncanny. It's pretty wild. Well, short of a miracle Mm -hmm. from God, what we will see in our lifetime is child pornography that is photorealistic and that is legal and that is given to people as a aid, as an outlet. That's right. And all kinds of other things like that. Right. That's just the simplest example. And then you'll never know. You'll never know if it's actually real or if it's not. Plausible deniability. Right. This is exactly analogous to what we discussed on the last 1984 episode, which is growing human flesh and eating it. Mm-hmm. It's like another weird, bizarre, horrible All kinds of ways mimic. to synthetically partake in absolutely every perverse right. desire possible, right? Yeah. While having some kind of like conscience-free, plausible deniability about it. Yeah, No actual people were eaten here. No actual children were raped here, except in my mind and in my heart, which God does still count against me. But my mind and my heart weren't going after anybody real. It's just a, it's basically just a drawing. And that's just... Is the dumbest argument. Yeah, yeah. And then, that's just not even going to be where it stops because... 
people even if you want to parse the difference, after, people will be doing. I mean, just like in that article, I start sorry to go down this road even further, but just like in that article where people were talking about synthetic versions of celebrities and their loved ones, mm-hmm. this sort of porn stuff and deep fake stuff is going to be uh, synthesized celebrity porn and synthesized incestuous porn and hate porn and all kinds of horrible things like that. Well, and also I think it's hilarious how we have feminism and we have all these things and then they circle back around and get us back to the same horrible places that we started from. So we've gotten to a place where most actresses actually aren't expected to do nudity. It's it's really is their choice. And if any producer is putting too much pressure on him, then he's a jerk that deserves to be me Me too. Yeah. We're going to get back to the place where we expect our celebrities to be naked and do sex scenes. And it'll be just as bad as it was in the seventies or something like that. And it will be, and the idea will be, well, Scarlett Johansson didn't actually have to go into a room and take off her clothes. We just had a model to do that. And then we put a head, the head on the model, which is already something that they're doing for sex scenes or it was just a synthetic version, but it means that the image of this real woman will be out there naked and people will be sinning with it and she'll be exploited that way. And it'll just be, it'll just be an expected thing. Yep. So it's a pray. Yeah. Now all that, I still stand by everything I said about AI not being the enemy a couple episodes, a few episodes ago. I, I think this technology is coming and I think in a just society, we'd say, great. Now, how do we get ahead of it? How do we regulate it? How do we use it for good? And the first thing that we would do is outlaw porn, not just AI porn, but all pornography as a right. thing. We, just like they can program the rules of chat GPT to deny basic truths about sexuality, you can, you can program AI to not be capable of nudity. Well, and actually most of the more popular ones do have, obviously, some restraints right now. You can't just type in something horrible with a child, for example, and have it create it. Now, it's fairly easy for people to find clever workarounds to make it do what they want. And and there are ones that are specifically designed for pornography already, things that are out there. Even those will have some some legality kind of chips put into them. But eh, in any case, there's no simple answers into, uh, right now as, as far as what how we could actually regulate the technology. But those are answers that we have to find. That, that starts or... With- Solar flare. Solar flare. <laughs> Which yeah. is what I keep expecting, actually. Expecting? I don't I don't know that there's any reason to expect it. It's just sort of like not gonna surprise me, you know, if that's what God does. Just takes our technology away from us. Just wipes the slate clean. Mm-hmm. Says, ha! Just sort of Tower of Babel. Yep. Like wouldn't shock me. I just I just, we can't plan around a solar flare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. It's just it, maybe it's just a, a fantasy. But, but who knows? I mean, it's, I think I think most discussions of theonomy and this sort of thing are so pointless. But if we went to an island and we were starting our own Christian government, I would be all in favor of it, including AI and everything else. And I would say, yeah, if somebody uses it to make pornography, then we will kill them. They will be executed. Yep. And that, sure. would be, that would have been our first stab at a just <laughs> <laughs> law. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That is that is so wicked and crosses such a line and is so destructive to society that we want to stamp it out using the death penalty. Yes, and then we'll and then we adjust from there. 
but <laughs> that'd be our starting place. Okay, so speaking of, I think this is going to be a very AI-heavy episode. So our next post was someone who had middling success with chat GPD to play D&D. Yep. So they made it into their dungeon master. And here's the quote. Here's the money quote from that article, which helps you explain, helps you understand what chat GPD is. GPD, just like any other neural network, is a probabilistic beast. It's capable of predicting with an astonishing success rate the next correct word in response to a sentence, thereby creating perfectly elaborated sentences while sounding very human-like when engaging with it. So it's kind of like talking to Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Dang it! You guys probably know exactly when these things are going to repeat, and I never anticipate it. I should remember that one. It lives pretty much in my head. It's that one. It's Hans Zimmer. It's a couple other ones. Hey, guess what just happened in the last hour, by the way? What happened in the last hour? OpenAI announces ChatGPT Plus at $20 a month. And how much is the old one restricted now? It looks like we're talking about principally faster response times and reliability during peak hours and no other restrictions on the free tier. Just just sort of, which honestly, I've tried to use chat GPT multiple times just to experiment and play. And I don't know how many times it's been like too busy. $20 a month is not going to be the successful pay model. So no, a, a, a Zuckerberg or a Musk or somebody is going to come along and make the big free version of this that's going to explode in popularity and then they'll figure out how to monetize it. Oh, there's a third thing. Priority access to new features and improvements. I'd pay 20 bucks a month to take off the filters, to take off the, the woke filters. Chat GPT minus the woke filters would be a pretty useful tool for, for my work, for this podcast, for example. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I can't ask it to collate information on half the things that I want it to kind of neuters it a little bit in terms of usefulness. So did you guys take the can you spot the AI art test? I did. No, I didn't. Well, Jake, you got to do it right now. You got to go very quickly for the sake of our listeners and just because it'll be fun. Where's that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Ben, do you have your score? I All right. Me against the machine. Hmm. I don't have my score. I don't remember what it was. I'll go. I'll go back. These are really small. I don't know that I. Yeah, they're they're pretty small. I'd say just go quick and let's see how good your intuition is. I will <laughs> say mine was not all that great. So yeah, I was only okay. So this the reading about AI and stuff reminds me of a short story by Gene Wolfe. Oh, shoot. brought him up before. What? I started taking this wrong. You started. I have to restart it. All right, me and me and Ben are going to talk while you, about Gene oh. Wolfe while you take the test. Yeah, I, I was selecting the one that was natural and not the one that was AI. Mm, ah. Sure you were, Jake. Sure. Mm-hmm. Now he knows how. Uh, to sure, you're, I'm sure you're not a robot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called Alien Stones, and it, it, there's it's a weird story, like a lot of Wolf stuff. But there's a point where the captain of this spaceship is talking to this to a guy through like a, a futuristic telecom back on earth or at a space station somewhere and he's talking to him about the business of being a captain and it's like he's training him and he he, he like makes fun of him and mocks him and the guy hangs up and then you learn that the guy he's talking to is not a real guy it's a golem of the earlier version of the captain and the this earlier version the simulated sort of ai-ish thing is going to be used to train future captains and gene wolf loves to do things like that because he likes to point out how we use technology or whatever to make 
crummier versions of ourselves, and we call that progress, because this guy is pouring all of his weaknesses and character flaws back into an earlier simulated version of himself, and that version will train future captains. Mm. And so it's going to pass along corruption and flaws. And so Gene Wolfe understood what a golem was, and I think he, I don't know if he ever wrote about, like wrote an article about our burgeoning AI before he died two or three years ago. But I think he would have understood, like, yeah, all of this is just a mirror. (laughs) It just reflects us. And the more twisted the mirror is, the more foolish it is of us to think that, (laughs) to think of it as some kind of advance. It's only as good as the users, right? basically. Exactly. And the more potent you make it, the more potently it will reflect all the human flaws that That's you, right. that you pour into it. Yeah. Yep. Well, I should say Orson Scott Card wrote a story about a alien species who regarded their own flesh as a delicacy. So, <laughs> Well, all these sci-fi writers are actually, Orson Scott Card is crazy grotesque. Gene Wolfe's often grotesque in a kind of a different way. Yeah, a Catholic and a Mormon there? Is that that's uh, right, yeah. that's right. Gene Wolfe, a Catholic, committed Catholic, hopefully a real believer. It's hard to tell. And Card, a committed Mormon for mm-hmm. sure. Not a real believer at all. But in both cases, you have kind of socially conservative Religious. guys. With, with, yeah, with, with, with the sense of the transcendent. Yeah, mm-hmm. and with a sense of like they actually do understand something about culture, I think, better than many of their peers, uh, both of them, Wolfe in particular. But Card, too. Card, too. It lets them... Talk about some real things. Yeah, I mean, especially, I don't know, Card, man, Card is really gross. But in the places that he'll go, but he'll always be gross to make a moral point. Mm-hmm. And often his point is well taken, even if there's, maybe the story isn't well taken. Right. But but yeah, like a lot of sci-fi guys, well, some of them, <laughs> trying to think of other authors who I respect and like and would even want to go back to. They, man, they get it. Yep. They see the darkness. Yep. Well, think of it, eating someone else's flesh in order to gain their power was a 17 huge, out of 21. 17 out of 21. Not bad. I got 14 out of 21. It was a huge plot point in Gene Wolfe's opus. Chris also got 17 out of 21. Our friend Chris, who posted this, this little quiz. I got about 14 out of 21. I, sounds like what I got. I in think. my defense, I, I made myself go very quickly. I just wanted to see whether my lizard brain could do it, not whether I could do it if I st- kind of studied it. How Entire- fast did I go? I, went, I didn't go too slow. No, you went you went fast too. I I wasn't referring to you one way or another. I was just defending myself. Seventeen out of twenty one, not bad. So four. The robot speech you four times. All it takes is one, and you have Skynet. Hey, Brian Cox thinks that J.K. Rowling is entitled to her opinion. Oh, Brian, your heart may be in the right place, but in this case, good intentions simply aren't enough. Women, even women who claim to be feminists, this is a quote from this Mike.com article, can have disgustingly bad ill-informed opinions, too. As far as transgender <laughs> rights are concerned, there's an actual term for those people. Turf. J.K. Rowling is one. And that article actually starts, O'Brien. So, yes, progressive feminists, the most condescending women in the world. Yep. Mm. I don't know what else to say it's, about that. Uh, it's just not much to say. J.K. Rowling continuing to live in people's heads. Yep. That's, I think, the most notable thing about it. She's got a real talent for doing that. Okay, next we have an article on this court case, Trans World Airline. No, no, no. I'm sorry. What is the actual court case? It's the it's the court case. Groff versus, versus DeJoy. Right. So the plaintiff is this guy named Groff. He's a formal postal worker who wanted to be exempted from working on Sundays because of his religious Beliefs. He asked the court to abandon a ruling called Trans World Airlines versus 
Hardison from 77, 1977, which imposes pretty strict limitations on an employee's ability to seek religious accommodation from their employer. Basically, the law says that an employer has to reasonably accommodate a worker's religious beliefs unless it would lead to, quote, undue hardships on the conduct of the employer's business. In other words, if you have to get stuff done on Sunday for your business to even work, then you cannot ask, then someone can't just say, no, nah, sorry, my religion says I can't be there yeah. on Sunday. The, the artisan established that the law does not require employers to bear more than a, a de minimis cost when it provides religious accommodation. So a small trifling cost. Yep. And this article spins, goes back and forth. It's like, well, Hardison is actually pretty bad because just giving employers requiring them to bear a de minimis cost is not really in the spirit of, not really in the spirit of the, of the statute. So yeah, they quote Justice Thurgood Marshall. Hardison makes a mockery of the statute because the idea was always to protect workers. And then Hardison comes along and says, no, we're just going to protect employers actually. And so this Vox guy's or girl, whoever's writing this article, Ian Milheiser, he's he's he spends a lot of a lot of words saying, eh, probably Hardison is bad and should be undone. But then the religious gonna, people, the religious people. Yep. I don't know. I, I don't mind not forcing employers to bear a huge cost in order to obtain my or to support my <laughs> religious beliefs. Yeah. Well, but what I mean, of course, what Vox is concerned with is like refuse like Hobby Lobby being able to refuse birth control right. services. So what what they're going into instantly is abortion rights and how what about if you're if if you're a corporate manager and you're like I'm not my religion doesn't let me give a birth control health plan to these employees and then suddenly your your poor employees the other employees they're out of the birth control that they deserve and they have a right to and they can't kill their babies on the employer's dime. So Vox is going to go into territory like that. Yeah. Well, I just, not to be an old school conservative type, but if Uncle Sam would just let employers do what they want and employees do what they want, I think that would be the solution to this particular problem. I don't think anyone owes me a job if I can't meet their requirements, and I don't think I owe them anything either. Yay, raw America. But I don't know. You guys want to say anything else about that? Sounds like you covered it. I think so. I mean, that's the basic idea. All right. Crowder versus Daily Wire. Somebody wanted us to weigh in on this thing. Did they? Yeah, they didn't put an article. They just talked about it in the comments and said, can you guys talk about it? And I said, yes, we can. Do do either of you guys have a hot take about? No. It's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of money at stake. That's what I learned. My hot take is that Daily Wire is absolutely 100% correct and Joe Crowder, whatever his name is, Crowder's an idiot. I have Steven Crowder. Steven Crowder. I have no love. For people who do what he did to his friends. Yeah. Well, I also have no love for the Daily Wire. I mean, I don't care yeah. about the Daily Wire. I'm not pro Daily Wire. I'm not pro Steven Crowder. I don't care. But he recorded, Crowder recorded private conversations and then released them to the public. And that's it. End of story. Don't need to know anything else. No one should work with that guy <laughs> ever again. End of story. Do not care. Unless. Jeremy Boring was like, he, 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 I'm enslaving children. And he recorded it. But that's not what happened. It was just a business negotiation with between friends. And Crowder released the phone call to try to support his asinine point that Daily Wire was somehow against free speech 
I mean, if people don't know, the basic gist of it is Crowder's this big conservative comedy, political commentator. Right. Commentators. He broke ties with his company, Daily Wire, which is Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh and all those guys, Jordan Peterson now, swooped in, made him a big offer. But their offer was somewhat contingent on Crowder's got a really popular YouTube show. If his YouTube show is demonetized, then the amount of money that Daily Wire pays him goes down because Daily Wire has to be able to reap profit from what he's doing. So, yeah, and there's just like a really deceptive thing about this whole, that whole aspect of it, which maybe I just stepped on you explaining. No, I don't think so. But but the fact is Crowder self-censors in order to not be demonetized on Google right now. Precisely. And so to pretend like Daily Wire is going to require him to censor when he's self-censoring, what Daily Wire is saying is, what you can't do is suddenly go unfiltered expect us and expect us to have your back and just pay you, right? We're not your safety net. You have to continue to self-filter in such a way that you stay on YouTube or else if it costs us, it'll, it costs you. And so he says, you guys are just in cahoots with big tech because <laughs> you want me to obey big tech. And it's like, Steve, no. you're already obeying big tech. We're just entering into a business relationship with you where we're both going to deal with the reality now of it's big us tech. that's at stake when you screw up instead of you at stake when you screw up, which means you've got to bear some of the cost with us. Right. That's, that's, all right. That th- that's all that they're saying. Which, the by the way, Shapiro does, Matt Walsh does, Jordan Peterson does. All of those guys, if they get demonetized, if they lose advertising dollars, their contract has it that they will go down. That's just a pretty basic thing that you'd put into that kind of a contract when that kind of money's at stake. And so you can be too cool for school and be like, why does so much money have to be at stake? <laughs> you see how conservatives just have, okay. Well, it's because it's a profit venture. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's, a, because it's all predicated on actually being able to make money as a business. Right. And the Daily Wire is not, in fact, a nonprofit. They're very upfront about this. They want you to sign up for their stupid subscription service. Yeah, and fine. They're perfect. They're allowed to do that. They have millions of dollars at stake. I mean, you can say what you want. You can say that they profit off of riling up conservatives, riling up conservatives without producing any action, but just sort of as the loud minority report. And so they have an interest in perpetuating that since that's their shtick, that's their niche, that's their business model. You can you can make that kind of argument or try to if you want, but you may not think that what they're selling is valuable. I have my doubts as well, but it's perfectly reasonable for them to try and sell it. I do listen to enough. I mean, I probably listen to Ben Shapiro two or three times a year when it's a topic I'm interested in. I think those guys are probably pretty sincere. I think that they want to see the culture change. I think that Matt Walsh really does want to dedicate his life to bringing down the transgender movement. I don't know how effective I think he is. I don't know how much I like him. I do know how much I like him. Zero. I don't like Matt Walsh at all. I think he's really annoying. But is he just a greedy capitalist taking advantage of stupid rednecks that want to be validated? No, I, I, I think I think he cares. I think he's actually a, a zealot for a cause. I, I, I'd say I know him and I know Shapiro well enough that I, I don't, they're not my friends, you know, I've never hung out with them. I don't really know what they're like, but insofar as I'm aware of who they are and how they present, what they talk about, I, I think they're probably sincere. I certainly think Jordan Peterson's sincere. I also think Jordan Peterson's happy to make millions and millions of dollars through his accidental success. And I don't know that I really begrudge him for that. I begrudge him for wearing suits and trying to be badass. I think he could, I think his shtick was better when it had a little humility in it, but 
whatever. So I'm thoroughly on Daily Wire's side in this, but also who cares? What else we got? There's some artists suing mm-hmm. AI. Yep. Suing AI art specifically, suing Dolly and stuff like this, saying, hey, you built your model by stealing my style stealing my style yes or so, enabling people to steal my style so it's so it's stability ai well there's is... two things there's in order to teach this ai they had to grab thousands of examples of artwork if not right. millions. millions so so you're taking like all of nathan's art and you're throwing it into this machine maybe without his permission so there's that aspect of it yeah and then there's the more general and more squishy legally aspect of you're simply just devaluing my field because now a computer can do what I was hoping to get paid as an independent artist. For. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're suing stability, suing <laughs> stability AI, which is a London based company co-developed stable diffusion and they're suing mid journey mm-hmm. and they're suing deviant art. My, my quick thought Let's see if this is true. It's just that if you take this logic to its conclusion, what you're saying is that AI shouldn't be allowed to take in anything. I don't know. It's like if you if you apply the argument to text. Sorry. I thought I had something to say, but I didn't. No, I think you did. I think you did. I'm trying to I'm trying to find it here. It's like I'm allowed to go to a library and check out all your books and read your novels, Nathan. Mm-hmm. And, and then I and then I'm gonna incorporate that into my style without paying you any money. I'm allowed to go and look at these girls' artworks if I want to. Mm-hmm. Or whoever, whatever famous artist might still be alive, and then I can incorporate the style into my art without paying them any money. But if a robot does it more efficiently, then I'm... Then it's then it's, then it's it's illegal kind of or robbery. it's exploitative. And I'm like, no, you just need to produce better art, and you need to trust that people actually want, on some level, human art that's not AI, and that has a touch that an AI is probably never quite going to achieve, although I won't, I won't 100% say that. 17 out of 21, four times got fooled. Four times got fooled, but with more time. Yeah, if I had, if we had each taken our time. Sometimes I was going on this roll. That's how I did it. But sometimes my eye caught something, a fing- right. fingers yeah. or legs or something being just wrong. Yeah. Uh, well, so much of the other thing that's squishy about all this is so much of what we call art that's done by indie artists these days is in fact them taking things from the internet, putting them together. They're doing it manually instead of automatically, but they're they're taking an image from here and from here and from here and they're stitching it all together. Yeah, they're just they're just recycling tropes and ideas that they found online or in classic art or something. Yeah, right? or even being like, I like how Harrison Ford looked in this screen grab from Blade Runner. And so I'm not just going to draw and my idea of it i'm going to copy and paste that image and then i'm going to modify it until i feel like i've had something new or you go and you can find street or sidewalk art that's just ripping off famous scenes from movies or marvel characters and people are going to sell that to you and people are going to buy it i think who this is a threat to is how do i say this in a way that doesn't sound mean there's a whole class of people who are boring and derivative and ai can steal their jobs and put them out of business. But there's always going to be a market for people who are original and interesting. I mean, somebody can make a pod. There will be an AI podcast that will deliver your news, and a bunch of news podcasts will go out of business. But if somebody is actually interesting and has something to say, I don't know that AI is ever going to be able to perfectly replicate that. Because AI cannot perfectly replicate God's image in us. And so 
yeah, bad artists, bad content creators, bad podcasters. The robots are coming for you. <laughs> They're not coming for me. <laughs> I, for one, welcome. I, for one, welcome our <laughs> AI overlords. I mean, you could make an argument that AI is a it is a weapon that will be deployed to further diminish the white middle class. We don't, and nobody going to be in their basement making art, making thirty thousand dollars a year anymore. Maybe. But that doesn't mean we still won't have Picasso. He'll just have to break through in a different way. I don't know. Yeah. There are so many, like, I had a whole series of discussions on Twitter about chat GPT and sermon prep. And it was mostly centered around whether or not, I mean, people are almost certainly using chat GPT to write sermons or generate sermon content for them. Right. There's a whole way to use something like chat GPT to do, to do research for you. Right. To collate research for you on things, on any number of creative things. But the synthesis and the production of something new and great and creative by synthesizing, you know, that's just not something that the AI is going to ever really be able to do. I think that's true. I understand content creators feeling un- unvalued by society because people have no idea what it takes to create something. And yeah, that's so. Right. They're so cheap about it. I mean, I, I'll give my classic example that that people will respond to poorly just by me giving it. But I think it's a really good example that truly creative people will understand what I'm talking about. I do not like the fact that the Babylon Bee took a formula from the onion and made it their own. I think it's evil. I think it's stealing. I think it's a violation of the commandments because they didn't have to work to create something, and the onion had something really, really valuable. Just in the fake headline formula, that's something that they created and something that belonged to them. And then these Christians come along and think they're just going to do their Christian version. That is fundamentally devaluing somebody else's work in a way that's pernicious. And nobody will agree with me on that. And you can hear the embattled quality in my voice. I'm representing all the embattled artists out there. And it's because you place no value or not the value that you should on creative ideas. Like it really actually takes something. You've really captured magic. You've really come up with something when you've come up with the fake headline formula. You've really come up with something when you're C.S. Lewis and you've come up with demons writing letters. Yep. And when someone just thinks. And now that they treat it like it's public property. Right. And is there some moratorium? Is there some place where it becomes public property? You know, after C.S. Lewis has been dead for 200 years, can we all just start writing our own demon letters? Yeah, sure. There are lines, and I don't know exactly what they are. But for the people that want to act like there are no lines, like they can just blithely, without their own creativity, take from someone else and barely do anything to disguise it, I I just think it's really bad. And Christian's never want to agree with me on that because they think the Babylon Bee is funny, I guess. And yeah, it can be, but you can't just steal. You cannot just steal. It's wrong to steal. And ideas are property. Ideas don't just exist. There's so much you could say about that because every time Jake gets up and preaches a sermon, he's using an assemblage of ideas. Thoughts and and ideas that I have. I'll just tell you my process and you can 
decide for yourself. I read commentaries. Sometimes I read other sermons. A lot of commentaries are former sermons. So if you read Lloyd-Jones, it's not a commentary. Those are his sermons. So if you're reading a volume of Lloyd-Jones sermons on something. But these are other men who have processed this passage, work to understand it, work to open it up, work to apply it, make application to their congregations. And I sit and I read that and I read it with my notebook out or my iPad in front of me. And I just make notes. And the, if there's an idea that strikes me, I'll just start writing. I'll rehash that idea in my own terms. I'll make my own little application. I might have my own little riff. And I'll just keep going. And I'll, I'll work through other people's material. The first thing I do is I just work through the passage myself. So I've got my own sort of original outline with odds ideas, mm-hmm. but those are, that's a really bare bones first pass. And then as I get deeper, I'm, re- I'm going to read Calvin, I'll read Lloyd-Jones, I'll read any number of other commentators. I might, occasionally, I might listen to somebody's sermon. When we were going through Ruth, I had a friend who was a pastor say, oh, I just preached on Ruth a year or two ago. Here's my sermon series. Maybe it'll be helpful to you. And I listened to some of his sermons and took notes as I went to help me figure out what I think. To, to say, oh yeah, that's a really great insight. Or, oh yeah, that's a really great application. I never thought that way about how to apply this passage that way, right? And then I come back afterwards and I say, okay, and I've got a whole bunch of material here. It needs to be ordered, structured, edited, and I need to figure out what to say and what not to say. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's just like my own unique assimila- assimilation of other people's ideas. And there are very few original or unique thoughts. Right. Mm-hmm. But you do have a unique way of synthesizing and presenting them. You have a way that has your personality and I have to a, it. And I have a unique congregation <laughs> yep. that needs to hear particular things in particular seasons, so, so, at least in my judgment, as their own unique personal shepherd. Yeah. So here's the trick. I, I think here's, here's the test, if people just want a simple test. Does you using someone's material without attribution in some way diminish their ability to profit from the materials. And if it is, then you shouldn't do it. And so it's fine for Jake to quote from John MacArthur, but he should say that he's doing that. If Jake forgets to say that he's quoting from Calvin, nobody cares. And if Jake takes something that John MacArthur says and it goes into Jake's... If I internalize it. Yeah, his his inner Cuisinart such that it's internalized and then it's regurgitated in a totally different form. And so it was part of the alchemy that made the new thing that Jake gave. That's fine. And so the the reason that I call out the Babylon Bee every chance I get is because their existence actually does diminish the onion's ability to profit from their good idea. It's not even one-to-one. They just took the same exact formula and then they managed to overtake the onion at this point. Right. And people don't care because people hate the onion because it's liberal and pagan. And I'm like, well, you can't just walk into a store owned by a liberal and pagan and steal all their stuff. That's ungodly. Yeah. So what's the what's the difference what's the difference here in this case then? If it if if we're diminishing these artists' opportunity to profit, right, by using their stuff to train this algorithm. No, but it's 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 not the same the 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 distinction's already been made. It's the algorithm is just assimilating whole world full of thoughts and ideas mm-hmm. right and it's it's code that that has been written to do the work but it it's not that different it, it, you can read 
a bunch of C.S. Lewis and you can read a bunch of Tolkien and you can be inspired by them and and create your own Tolkien Lewis-esque fantasy. Or you can be like, dear Screwtape or dear... Mm-hmm. Right. Wormwood. Wormwood. <clears throat> your affectionate uncle Screwtape, right? Like there's one that's just like a lazy, stupid... Well, and if I, if I write the Chronicles of Blarnia, then that that steals from C.S. Lewis's ability or his heir's ability now to to promote and to make money off of Narnia and for Narnia to be its own intellectual profit. If, if I'm just inspired by C.S. Lewis and then I go and do some my own thing, which is going to have a lot of Lewis if he was one of my guys, you know, that really is a different thing. I and mean, probably, probably that actually makes more people read Lewis because if right, they like exactly. you and they know that you were influenced by Lewis, they're like, oh, I want to go drink from that stream too. Well, you, right. can, you, exactly. you as an artist can only, you have a limited supply of what you can create, worlds you can create, books you can create, right? So even for that very reason, it's like, well, okay, when my kids get done with Harry Potter... They're going to be like, well, I want more like this. And then they will go, and then they do go back to Narnia, or they do go to Tolkien, mm-hmm. or they do go to Robert Jordan or whatever else. Maybe mm-hmm. they go to something cheap and stupid, you know, maybe they go to Rick Riordan or I don't know what, but that's, you know, these yeah. these roads all connect and lead to other people who are creating unique properties that all have some relation to one another because they're they share mutual inspiration and... They're downstream of each other and they're in conversation with each other. And that's very different than just being like, I'm going to write the continued adventures of Narnia. This is what happened to Mr. Tumnus moving forward. And <laughs> even there, maybe there's a way to do something like that, but it's got to be. Well, and it matters that C.S. Lewis is dead and it matters how long he's been dead. Another hundred years, another 200 years from now, if somebody just wants to say, you know what, I'm picking up the, the screw tape thing. I don't care. And I think that it's fine that we have designed a copyright system where it eventually runs out. I mean, the Disney is very good at keeping this from happening, but the basic idea that at some point Mickey Mouse belongs to everybody, and we can argue when that point is, but at some point he's just mm-hmm. yeah. the world. Well, Winnie the Pooh now belongs to everybody, and so... We've got mm-hmm. Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, the horror movie. Yeah, somebody's um, got to go desecrate it. Right, right. Exactly. So so there are thin lines and we can argue about where those lines are. But and so with AI, what I would say is if they want to say, if, if I'm Nathan Alberson, the artist, and I want to say it's unfair that someone should be able to type into one of these systems, draw me a picture in the style of Nathan Alberson. I think it would be fair to make a law against that. But the fact that AI has used as assimilated my work while in the process of assimilating everything I don't, I don't think that it's really fair to have a problem with that. No. But what about the people who write elevator music? Like, what are they going to do for work? Go somewhere else. They're going to be put out, put out of a job. And the people that sell violins can make a great living because I'll buy some to play it for them. on music that will be composed by an artificial intelligence (laughs) sounds great which assimilated all the world's music so the world's gonna get better i think this stuff is worth thinking and continuing to think and talk about well and i'm sorry i don't even being willing to draw these sorts of lines or, or or question them it's like okay i just wrote my first little book and it was based on a sermon series and i was terrified like I made sure that we ran that sucker through multiple mm-hmm. plagiarism detectors mm-hmm. because it's just like even in my own 
head and my own heart, the lines between what I have absorbed and assimilated from other people, what's my own thought versus what's something I've just adopted from somebody. It's like, I forget. It's not clear. And I'm just like, I was just really afraid that there was going to be some, some kind of like any number of things in that, in that book that I, 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 I stole from somebody that I. Yeah. It's such a nebulous process that you're going to get things wrong. So it, it, I, I do kind of like, I, I, I've gone back and listened to Chip and Lance things from years ago and I'll just be like, oh, that's a Simpsons joke. And I regret that. But also they were very formative to my sense of humor. And so it's crept in there and it happens from time to time, but it's never my intention to steal from anything in particular. Mm -hmm. They formed my entire worldview. So of course, (laughs) (laughs) of course it's going to, that flavor is going to be in there. But if we were like, we're going to do a creative project where there's a yellow nuclear family that goes on absurdist adventures in a small town. It's like at a certain point where we're devaluing the Simpsons. Yeah. Doing Chip and Lance as we do it, even though it is does have a strong flavor of of Simpsons and all the other things that have influenced us and me, we're not devaluing them. If anything, mm-hmm. we're just teaching people to like absurdist humor and maybe they'll discover the Simpsons and really like it. So great. Weird example because people like maybe like our Christian stuff and don't like the Simpsons because of what's immoral about it. But yeah, I don't know. I just I I think Christians can be especially cheap about this kind of thing, and that's just what's the word? Feel entitled, especially when it comes to pagan stuff. Like, well, of course I can just make my own Star Wars. Like George Lucas doesn't deserve any credit. I'm making Christian Star Wars, or I'm making Christian this or Christian that, mm-hmm. and I think because it's the Christian version, they're allowed to just steal the formula and all the tricks and do it blatantly in a way where a pagan would at least feel the need to disguise it and mix it up a little bit. I find that irritating. Christians should have, yeah, I don't know. We ought to have also though some patient, like part of the, the dumb thing about the Babylon Bee, there's so much in terms of artistic maturity that you don't understand when you get started writing and creating your own mm-hmm. things, right. right? So every each of the three of us can go back to our earliest stories we've written, our er- earliest poetry or songs that we've written, our earliest sermons that we've preached, and be mortified by how obviously, stupidly, immaturely we were ripping people off. Right, true. Without even maybe realizing that that's, or knowing that's what we were doing. We just had not had enough experience developing <laughs> our own style and it had a limited number of formative things in our lives. It's just like, oh, Tolkien is all I know how to write, or oh, Lewis is all I know how to yep. write, or oh, oh, John Piper is all I know how to preach, or oh, you know, whatever it actually, whatever it actually is. Yeah, and then it, it's Robert Benchley's famous quote of, by the time I realized I had no talent to write, I was already too successful and couldn't stop. And so you start doing a stupid headline, fake headline, derivative piece of crap thing, and then it it, it it, in on. a place where the internet's a thing and it's relatively new and it's the wild west and it catches on and now it's a whole shtick and maybe at this point you're like oh man and maybe that was part of why adam what's his face sold the babylon b got out of it started doing something else but man i'd like to see a little shame on the part of everybody who runs it now and i'd like to see them swerve into something else and i mean the internet can because of because of the fact that you can have a 13-year-old go viral and become a mega influencer, it can enable this sort of 
this sort of thing to happen to people and them to get boxed into corners. Yeah. Well, the other thing I'll say to creators is it's a really good idea to do it privately. If you ever want to just try and figure out what Cormac McCarthy's tricks are and so you sit down and you try and write something in his style, that's fine. Just A, mm-hmm. don't make me read it for you because yeah. I'd rather shoot myself and B, don't publish it. It's actually if you have the patience to write unpublishable things, it's a pretty good trick. Raymond Chandler always used to say this, that the number, the thing that he did to learn how to write detective novels was he took some Perry Mason novels, he made a detailed outline, and then he sat down and he wrote the Perry Mason novels and saw what worked in the actual author of Perry Mason's, what didn't work when he did it. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, I can't make these guys... I can't bring this room to life. I can't bring these characters to life. What's wrong? And he said it was the best piece of writing practiced they'd ever got and taught him everything he knew. And I think that could be a tremendous way to, like if you want to just, if you if you want to learn jokes, to write jokes, you could do a lot worse than, I'm going to write 10 fake headlines every day for a year. By the end of it, you'll be a better joke writer. But don't publish them. Right. Well, just yesterday or the day before one of my sons was i don't know some kitchen chore doing the dishes or something like that he had some comedian on i don't know i think it might have been jim gavigan or whatever and i was just watching observing him Mm -hmm. as he was the way that somebody would sing a song was he had all the lines all the beats everything memorized intonation and was just practicing along beat for beat the comedic style of jim gavigan he didn't even amanda asked him if he, I think, you know, one of the phrases was, you know, self-righteous, and it was, it was righteous indignation. Mm-hmm. And it was like part of a punchline or whatever that Ian like nailed, you know, he like got the beat, got the intonation, got everything right, just like on point. And Amanda asked him, do you even, do you even know what righteous indignation means? And he said something like, no, that's not the point. <laughs> and then he kept on going. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's like, all right. He's he's practice like and that's not the only comedian he does things like that with. Right. He's practicing telling jokes. He's practicing comedic comedic timing. He's, the musicality of it, yeah, yeah, the musicality of other people's comedic rhythms. Yeah, and if I listen to the earliest podcast that we do, I can listen to this podcast and hear who I'm doing, and I can listen to another podcast and hear me doing someone else. And in both those cases, I don't think like I don't think I sat down and said I'm going to do this person. I I just hear I can hear who my influences are. I can't do it anymore. Because we've been doing podcasting for so long that I just have my own voice and it's not something I think about that much. Mm -hmm. If I think about it at all, it's just, oh, you're a little low low energy there. You need to be more high energy, Mm -hmm. have a little more fun with it. Mm -hmm. It's it's more generic advice that I give myself because I just, I have a voice. And one of the ways you learn to have a voice is to imitate other voices. I mean, there's two kinds of kids that memorize and do comedy routines. There's NPC, jock bully jerks who know every line of Monty Python and will never create anything in their lives. And they oppress, they, they make girls laugh by doing the whole routine. And I'm not convinced that those people even understand what humor is. And then, <laughs> and then you have the kid that wants to learn the music. And so he knows Gaffigan routines. He knows Brian, what's his face, Regan, Regan routines. Yep. And he can do it all really well, but He's doing it because he wants to create, and eventually, someday, he'll have his own voice. And I think that's who Jake's son is. I, yeah, I think that's oh, yeah. just like his, 
Yeah. You have other sons where if they were memorizing a Gaffigan routine, I'd be like, oh, no, no, no. no. Stop, <laughs> no. stop, stop. <laughs> this is just so that I can perform it to impress somebody later. Right. Period. Yeah. And there is nothing else. No, but yeah. And that's Ian's a different kid. He wants to know the music, he mm-hmm. wants to internalize it, he wants to mm-hmm. figure out what works and why it works and why it doesn't work. He listens to soundtracks for, for the same reason. He replays scenes in his head. He can tell you beat by beat, you know, what's happening as he's listening to the score of something in the movie. And mm-hmm. he's, but he's listening to the score over and over again because he's analyzing how the, like he's, I don't even think he realizes exactly what he's doing, but what he's doing is he wants, some of it is because he wants control. He's, a, he's an incredibly emotional kid who is totally immersed in, in, in a movie but he and so some of it's just like that steven spielberg Sammy Fableman, Sammy up Fableman, trains. Yeah. yeah he wants to be able he was so affected by it he wants to be able to control it and that means he has to understand it and he has to wrap his head around it and he has to be able to recreate it and so he does that with with the score to a movie he'll play the score over and over again and he'll rehearse the movie in his mind or he'll get he'll hear a score to a movie and he'll imagine the whole movie. He'll write his own movie in his head to that score. And then he'll beg to see the movie. And then he'll be disappointed, which is exactly mm-hmm. what happened with Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. He got onto that score because he was listening to some thing. And he built a whole movie in his mind about Pirates of the Caribbean. And I didn't want him to watch that movie right. for all kinds of reasons. But eventually, one night I caved. And he was so disgusted. Right. Oh, yeah. He was so incredibly disgusted with that movie. Score promises stuff the movie doesn't give you. Well, the, the score promised a hero. Yeah. <laughs> oh my the, goodness. That and that was really it. Mm-hmm. Like the score prom the score was heroic. Uh, mm-hmm. His name is Orlando Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> and there was nothing about Jack Sparrow <coughs> that that fit anything that the score told him, and he felt he felt betrayed. Score is a hundred percent sideways. Yeah. And I think betrayed is is exactly how he felt. It's a bad score. I've always said it's a bad score. I, I agree. It's an awesome. It's not an awesome score. It's just generic Hans Zimmer. It's really fun. It doesn't even have a thing that feels piratey about it. No, I'm not saying that it's. I'm not saying that it's piratey. I'm you not saying it's right for the score of the, the Rock and the score of. <laughs> I think I'm it's, saying it's right for the movie. I'm just saying it is catchy. You can remember it. Yeah, it does yeah, have a, a, energy and heroism and all those. It, Things that just misapplied. I think yeah. it's a bad score that's catchy and all those things, but I could see it just out of context being a fun thing that you were like, yeah, I want to see the movie this goes to, especially as a kid, yeah. filling it with your imagination. And if I was if you t- just subbed it into the MCU. Oh, yeah. I wish the MCU had a score that good. Right? Yeah. yeah um, no kidding. But, yeah. I don't know. The I think the Avengers main theme is underrated. There's nothing else in... And I, I agree. I, like I know. I, I like the theme. Avengers main theme, and I like the portals stuff. I just Thanos doesn't have a memorable theme. Come yeah, on, he doesn't stupid. have his own Imperial March. Yeah. You guys missed a bet. Come on. Yeah, they're yep. they're dumb. They're dumb for all kinds of reasons. Yep, that, that's the only one. There's I like so everything else stupid. that they've done. Every I, you know, we we, we threw on Lord of the Rings by the way last night, and man, there's so much that is just Lord. Well, I don't know. I was listening to the Lord of the Rings and I was hearing Star Wars, but then I was hearing the Avengers coming out of it even and all kinds. I don't know. That score is something. I mean, it's a, it's one of those things that exists yeah. in this space of that we're actually talking about where, and there were a couple other things that I heard that I wasn't even aware of. And it's because I was not paying attention to the movie. I was actually reading a book 
And so I, I, I don't listen to movie scores or anything like that. I'm not like Ian with that, but I was reading a book while the movie was playing. And so I just kept hearing things that I, if I had been paying attention to the movie, wouldn't have heard. But it, but in terms of like the overlap between influence and, uh huh, yeah, I, I will always support that score just because it is the last gasp of leitmotif in the American cinema, and then it died. And American cinema music sucks now, and I hate it, and I hate the fact that we don't have good scores in our movies. And so, you can say Howard Shore failed, but Howard Shore tried. He wrote bad guy themes. He wrote a Rohan theme. He wrote yeah. a this guy theme. He I, wrote a Hobbit theme. I, I think if, having having been a kid who listened to soundtrack and owned that score and listened to it a million times and saw the movie with crazy anticipation, maybe like, well, not like Jake because Jake was introduced to the movies or introduced to the franchise through the movies, right? That's right, yeah. I was, I was definitely over time like, ah, I don't really like this. But I agree. He tried. Yeah. And it's until you get to Amazing Spider-Man 2, you really don't have a renaissance <laughs> of awesome leitmotifs. You, you still took the words. <laughs> I am a fan of a like lot of... I feel like we've switched podcasts. <laughs> hey, I'm a fan of a lot of stuff that, that, that late period Hans Zimmer does. I'm a fan of Man of Steel. I'm not a fan of his Nolan Batman stuff. Huge fan of The Lion King. <laughs> I love The Lion King. Is that King. Zimmer? Yeah, that's Zimmer. It, I actually think... I mean, it's uh, Rice and John for the songs, but it's... Uh, yeah, but but just if you think of like what happens when Mufasa dies or what happens when the Pride Lands are... are it's been too long for me. Are... But I'm no, sure yeah, that you're right. It's great. Yeah. Zimmer is capable. I mean, da, da, da. people yeah, love the Gladiator like score. That's really... leitmotif. The 2000s was the last, the early oddies was like the last gasp of good it, movie music. Mm, I I see. Man of Steel, I think, kind of awesome in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it's good, but it's just, it's this whole bed of sound kind of thing. Like, but, but you he's, can't just but, have but a triumphant theme. Yeah, but but themes. he basically does. He he does have a, he hides a triumphant theme with like a pop hook in there. Yeah, but in why, the bed why of does sound. it have to be ashamed of itself? Why can't it it's, just come I, out and play? I, I don't think it is. I think it's playing around. I, I mean, think it'll be like around. a, like the Joker's theme is, which I don't mind. Like it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's like, there's a sound, there's a. I'm not going to defend the Batman score. I don't, the Dark Knight stuff. To be fair, that dun, is a massively powerful earworm. It's like the sandworm yeah. of earworms. It's so annoying. It's like there all the time. But I mean, it just speaks to how hungry we are for these things because the bat the Batman score comes out and half the half of the days I work with Ben, he'll be on his computer <laughs> and I'll hear him. The dumbest little four note motif or whatever it is. And but it knows what it is, and it's like, I'm a light motif. Yeah, I know. We're I know. having fun. And you were hungry. You want light motif. <laughs> you want themes. Absolutely. <sighs> Absolutely. Okay. I have no idea what we're talking about. Now. <laughs> we have switched. We have switched movies. We have switched podcasts. Some we, kids listen to really things. Be, some kids, when they absorb a creative work, they're absorbing the lyrics. Some kids are absorbing the music. Some kids listen to Jim Gaffigan's hot pocket routine so that they can have the lyrics, have the words, repeat them to girls, make them laugh. Those kids are dumb. Then there are kids that absorb. The musicality, the essence, the soul of what a Gaffigan is doing, so that they can go and make their own jokes, and mm-hmm. that is smart. And yes, I have staunch opinions about these things, but it's really hard when you're a creative kid when when you're working to make 
just in high school when or middle school, when you're working to make people laugh and then some buffoon that couldn't come up with a joke to write his life or to save his life quotes a Monty Python routine or something and gets bigger laughs, like you do resent that. You do resent it when people when you're trying to be creative and people who aren't creative are taking someone else's creativity and riffing on it. I want to try this. And becoming more popular. I don't know if this is the right thing. Yeah. Pride Land's being restored right yeah, now. Yeah, so uh, you go through the decimation of it all to everything being restored, and it's going to like break out here in a second. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, actually, yeah, Zimmer's- what he put into... Exactly. It's way more than a movie like this deserves, I think. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Zimmer, even when he's crummy, you're gonna, he's going to be memorable. And he's not crummy here. Yeah, Zimmer's great. I don't, yeah. I don't know why the Dune soundtrack was such a swing and a miss. Oh, my goodness. I, can, can, we, can we chalk that up to... Uh, Villeneuve pushing Zimmer into his worst instincts. Yeah. Let's, Vill- blame, let's blame it all on Villeneuve. Villain, Villeneuve. <laughs> it, it, more, it puts the villain in Villeneuve. Yeah. Hey, Good Dinosaur had a pretty awesome motific soundtrack. Our whole I, audience is humming along I, right I, now. <laughs> I love that soundtrack. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it's, I'm being hyperbolic, of course. There are still good soundtracks being written. It's just that the popular stuff, your Marvels and things like that, they, they, they do not feel the need. Probably the best Marvel soundtrack was Black Panther just because, you know, they did I can't remember tribal all. stuff and rap songs. Yeah, I, yeah I they no brought in uh, Kendrick Lamar. Yep. A soundtrack I always liked, which I don't think got a lot of purchase, was the original X-Men soundtrack, which makes the movie way better. If you're keyed into the soundtrack, the soundtrack is like Who did doing that? a ton of work. That was Michael came in the late... Michael Kamen famously scored Die Hard, famously worked with Metallica to make rock concerts, heavy metal rock concerts with yep. classical music. The late great, I'd say. Yeah. He was pretty good. Yeah, he was. Guys, we have to be done. We didn't even mention Danny Elfman. We right. will. Danny true. Elfman, unfortunately, has decayed trying. Yeah. yeah. No, Danny Elfman's awesome early, Danny Elfman. Oh, sure. I mean, all the, all the 90s Burton stuff, I'd say through about Sleepy Hollow, Danny Elfman was... Awesome. And you can make fun of him like he's always going to do a little children's choir creepy. Which like is true. He, he has a style. But. You have to be made fun of for certain things. But yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's even good. even the Hulk, Ang Lee's the Hulk, actually has a pretty awesome hooky kind of little thing it does. Yeah, well, I'm so hungry for it that even just hearing. Hey, he also gave us Spider-Man. Yeah. Not yeah. Just Batman and Spider-Man. That's like. The, the Spider-Man one was. That's okay. I think it's, it's not. The, it's not great. But it's in the middle not. of his decay, but you go back to it now and you're like, I wish we could have it that good. Well, yeah, that's. I think that's that's the point. It's not as epic as Batman, but yeah. But also, it's just a little wrong for Spider-Man. Like Spider-Man needed something a little more, I don't know, joyful or like yeah, fun. He's Spider-Man. Yeah, he does whatever Spider can. Okay, we've wandered so far afield. I don't think we're getting back, but we did actually cover all of our <laughs> material that we were supposed to cover for the fans. So, yep, enjoy your lawsuit, AI. Artists, I'm guessing there's enough powerful people that want AI to be a thing that you will fail. And yeah. Okay. I'll tell you what would be the opposite of failure on the part of people listening would be to rate, review, and subscribe. We could use some new reviews for this podcast. Please review it on your podcast listening app of choice. Write a little review. Five stars. What should they say? Let's generate it for them. I 
have never heard such an excellent podcast by Christians on culture, and I probably never will hear one again until I listen to the next episode of this podcast. The Pagans, obviously much better, but when it comes to <laughs> Christians, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> this is the last podcast That's right. That's right. I've heard. Well, guys, I'm glad this podcast isn't artificial intelligence. I'm glad we're not just a bunch of robots. Right, guys? Right. Initiate sly <laughs> winking <laughs> protocol. Do <laughs> <laughs> you have something on the board for that? All right. Until next time. Stay sane. That is not the <laughs> I And we're moving into a new segment. We're moving into a new segment. All right. Let's try that again. Until next time. Stay sane. <laughs>